you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Judges chapter 21? Judges chapter 21. We'll finish up our time in Judges together today. Judges chapter 21. We're actually going to be looking at chapters 19 through 21, but I just want to read one verse as the theme of the sermon. And really, I want you to see this as the theme of the whole of the book of Judges. It's the last verse of the book, a summary. Chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we submit ourselves to you. O oh Lord, let us not do what is right in our eyes. Let us not follow after our own hearts. Let us not follow after our own appetites. But no, Lord, let us bow ourselves in submission to you and follow after the Lord Jesus. Let us do what is right in your mind and right in your ways. Lord, let us live according to your holiness because we know that that is the only hope that we have to thrive as the people that you have designed and created us to be. Father, I pray for uh, all of the people that are here. Maybe some of them are spellbound by the age that we live in today, confused and deceived that today you would call them out of that deception, break that spell, that they might be brought into the kingdom of God. God, I pray for Christians today that are living a life of sin, a life in which they are bringing disgrace to the name of Jesus, that today, by the name of Jesus, through the grace of Jesus, for the hope of Jesus, that God, they would be delivered anew, and God, they would be have their feet reestablished on the firm rock that is Jesus Christ and the gospel. Lord, whatever it is that you intend to say to us, Lord, I pray that you would say it to us powerfully today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there was a, uh, there, there is a, um, an op-ed author for the New York Times, and he wrote what I think really uh, is a helpful diagnostic for our age, and I think it really helps us understand what it is that's going on in the book of Judges. He wrote this, his name is Ross Douthat. He says, in the future, it seems, there will only be one ism, individualism, and its rule will never end. As for religion, it shall decline. As for marriage, it shall be postponed. As for ideologies, they shall be rejected. As for patriotism, it shall be abandoned. As for strangers, they shall be distrusted. Only pot, selfies, and Facebook will abide. And the greatest of these will probably be Facebook. And when you read it, you read it, there's a lot of truth, isn't there? There is a lot of truth. That the way that we are describing and defining and deciding on how we will live our lives is we are deciding on what's best for me. What do I want? What do I think? We live really in the age, in the era of self, don't we? That, we, that our ideas today are, what is it that I want? How is it that I can care for myself? Now, what has been asked in the past? How can I care for my neighbor? How can I care for my family? How can I make sure everyone has what they need? Not today. Today it is how, how do I care for myself? There, there's been a time throughout church history, the majority of church history, when a Christian had a thought, when they had questions, they would go to the church and they would say, 
tell me, explain to me how it is that we are to think about such things. How are we to think about sexuality? How are we to think about gender? How are we to think about uh, uh, abortion and pro-life, pro-choice issues? How are we to think about a lot of these issues? Not anymore. Today, the question is not what does the church think? The question is not what do my parents think? Today, the question is what do I think? What are my opinions? How do I define those things for myself? You can see this uh, through companies and through team sports, right? Used to, used to what people would do is they would lock in with a company and they're going to be there 30 or 40 years, man. Like you can just write it in. They're going to go in, get in a place, work the ladder, uh, retire, have their pension. And I'm not saying that you have to do these things to be God. I want you to understand what I mean. But it's a principle. It's a paradigm, a parable of the time that we live in. What happens today? Today, it's not about how do I build a great team. It's not about how, do I, how am I a part of a great company. Today, it's how do I promote myself? Even in team sports, what are athletes always doing selfies, right? Always finding some new way to brand themselves, finding some new way to stand out from the rest of the team so that they are more easily promoted. And all of these things, I think, are indicative of this individualism that is beginning to really take root in our society where I ask the question, what do I want? What do I think? How do I help me get to where I ultimately want to be, whether that's in career, whether that's in happiness, whether that's in family, whether that's in church, right? And, and, and what I think is interesting about that is that really we can take that idea of individualism that if we're honest, we can see all around us, everywhere that we can look. And we're reading in the book of Judges, and it's like reading and looking into a mirror, isn't it? That what we read in the book of Judges is we read about a group of people who were called really to the ultimate collective ideal. Think about who they are. God has called them not as individuals to pursue God's glory, right? God has called them together as a whole nation. And through this nation, God is going to set them aside and let his glory dwell in their midst so that through them, every other nation on all of the earth will be blessed. It is the ultimate collective ideal. But when we come to Judges, what we see is the nation of Israel is like a spring that is broken. And and that spring is uncoiling and uncoiling and uncoiling to the point where now you can hardly even recognize what it was to begin with. It's almost utterly unrecognizable. So when the uh, writer of Judges gets to the end, he summarizes that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. And you can think back to Samson and the prominent role that eyes have played throughout the book of throughout the book of Judges. Now let me give you a millennial translation. I give you a millennial translation of this verse. Everyone followed after their own heart and did what was best for themselves. That's what this verse means. Everyone followed after their own heart and did what was best for themselves. In other words, what the judges were doing is the judges were, faith, were, were applying to their lives, or during the time of judges, the people of Israel were applying to their lives the very advice and counsel that we give to every graduate throughout human history, it seems like, here in America. They were living according to their own hearts. But what we find is, is that this is intended for us to understand in the book of Judges the opposite of human flourishing. 
that this actually takes us not closer to where we want to be, but further from where we want to be. That it actually does it help us succeed and help us live effective lives and purposeful lives and significant lives. That it actually, over time, begins to cause us to deteriorate so that we're ultimately shells of who it is that God has called us to be, experiencing only a fraction of the goodness and the purpose and the significance that God has called and designed for us to live with as His image bearers. That there is an inevitable progression to individualism that we see in the judges that we can take and lay as a lens over our own society and our own culture and we can begin to note this own, the same progression taking place today and by diagnosing that progression we can see where we are in it and thus be delivered from it. Because what I want to offer to you all, what I want to offer to all of the people that are online, is I want to offer you the opportunity so that you can flourish according to the design that God has designed you with. I want you to live not according to what seems right, what feels right, what sounds right, what everybody else says is right, but what is actually right. So that you can thrive according to God's design and the way that He intended you to be from the beginning. So I want you to see this inevitable progression that you see. The first thing I want you to see is that individualism begins with moral deterioration. Individualism begins with moral deterioration. So there is a, uh, I don't know what happened there. Uh, There is, uh, this is, by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, most people consider this to be the low point of the Old Testament morally. It is considered to be kind of the lowest of the low. I told uh, Andrew this week even, I've read through the Bible a number of times now, and I just somehow missed so much of what was here in the end of the book of Judges until just this week. But what you have in the, in, in the book of Judges, you have this man, and he's a Levite. Now, you remember who the Levites are. The Levites are the tribe of Israel that doesn't own land because they are the ones from whom we get the priesthood, right? They care for the temple. They oversee the ritual sacrifices and all of those things. And so you have a, a Levite, and his concubine leaves him and goes to her father's house, and he goes four months later in pursuit of him in pursuit of her. And so he goes into his father-in-law's house and his father-in-law wants to spend a lot of time with him and hang out. And so, man, they just party together for about five days, living it up. And every day, the Levite's like, man, I've really got to go. I've got to get back to town. I've got some things I've got to take care of. And the father-in-law said, no, just stay with me one more day, man. Just stay with me one more day. And it gets to the fifth day And really, they party all morning long, and it gets to the end of the day, and the Levite is like, look, enough, man, enough. I've got to bounce. I've got to get out of here. And so he takes his wife, and they begin to head back uh, to his home. But on the way, what they discover is, is that they've left too late in the day, and they're not going to be able to make it all the way home. Now, you have to understand, they're not just getting in their Tesla and running down I-20 to get to Birmingham, right? Like, it is dangerous in this day and age to be able to travel, especially at nighttime. And he was going to have to cross over and cross through some uh, Canaanite territory. So it was going to be especially dangerous. And so they're going down, and you know how you do, you know, you kind of come to this realization, we're going to have to find us a Motel 6 somewhere. It's probably going to be less than suitable accommodations, but we're just going to find a place, we're going to crash, and then we'll finish finish our journey tomorrow. And so they come up, and the first exit that they come to is a city, the city of Jebus. Now the city of Jebus, that's the Canaanite name for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at that time was still under, so if you think of the Jebusites, you ever heard that term in the Bible? Those were the Canaanites that lived and dwelled in Jerusalem. They become significant uh, enemies and opponents to Israel, right? And so they come up to Jebus and they're like, okay, now 
I know that we're tired, and I know this has been a long journey, but this is not the side of town that we're going to hang out in, all right? We're going to have to go one exit further because nobody in Jebus is going to take us out. None of the Jebusites are going to take care of us. In fact, they're probably going to rob us. They're probably going to try to take advantage of us. And so what they decide to do is they decide to go one exit down to the city of Gibeah, which is in the land of the Benjaminites. Now, you remember, according to the law of God, hospitality is required of you. It's required. It was a, a very important custom, particularly in ancient cultures, because they didn't have Motel 6s, and they didn't have Super 8 or Holiday Inn Express, if you're real fancy. You know, like they, they, didn't, they didn't have all of those things back in those days. And so they were really uh, dependent upon people to take them in and allow them a place to stay and a, and a meal to eat. And so they, uh, the, the law of God actually requires and compels his people to take care of sojourners in this way. And so they hold out and they come into the land of the Benjaminites, but the Benjaminites do not take them in. And this is kind of the first clue in the narrative that things are not right in Israel. Things are not okay in Israel. They are clearly and obviously disobeying the law of God. And it's a very, a very subtle message. And so what they decide is they decide they're going to sleep in the middle of the square there in Gibeah. Well, a sojourner who is living in Gibeah now is a man not from the Benjaminites, but a man from the tribe of Ephraim. And he's an older man, and he's been there a while. And it's supposed to stand out to you if you understand the hospitality uh, ideas of, the, of antiquity. It's supposed to stand out to you. But they, he comes to him and he finds them in the square. And he's like, whoa, guys, easy now. You do not want to sleep here. You trust me. Trust me. Y'all can do what you want to do, but you do. I insist. I insist that you come and you're going to crash with me. You're going to stay at my house because you do not want to stay in the middle of the town square. And uh, and the Levite begins to put up a bit of a of an argument. And say, no, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll take care of ourselves. You know how you do. He, he, and he obviously doesn't mean it. He must have been Southern, right? Like just trying to be nice, but not really being sincere. And so he's saying the whole time, like, no, no, no. And, and, and the man from Ephraim says, no, I insist. You cannot sleep on the square you come and stay with me. And that's where this story goes from strange, weird, and uncomfortable to like zombie apocalypse strange, all right? So that's where we pick up in chapter 19, beginning in verse 22. It says, and they, as they, they being the Levite, his party, the concubine, and the man from Ephraim, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of this city Worthless fellows. Think about how this is describing the people of God. Worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. I want you to hold in your mind. What, what, past, what story does this bring into your mind? And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, this is knowing him not interpersonally. This is knowing him the way Abraham knew his wife, Sarah, the way Adam knew his wife, Eve. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are, are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, abuse them, so your translation may say, and do with them what seems good to you. Does that bring into your mind that verse that we read to kick off, doing what seems right in their own minds? But against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her 
Does that bring any thoughts to your mind, any, any other passages in your mind? Because there's supposed to be a biblical deja vu that is taking place. That one-fourth of the words, the vocabulary in this passage comes from Genesis 19. Do you remember what happens in Genesis 19? God has condemned Sodom and Gomorrah and he is going to rain down fire and sulfur and wipe those cities from existence. And Abraham's like, no, 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 my nephew, Lot, Lot lives in Sodom. You can't destroy Sodom. God, what if there's 50 righteous men? What if there's 40 righteous men? What if there's 10 righteous men? God, what if there's just one righteous man? You can't go and destroy this whole city. And you remember what the scene that takes place? God sends two messengers into Sodom. And they go and they begin to live in Lot's house or spend the night in Lot's house. And all of the neighbors and all of the people of Sodom begun to pound on the door of Lot, demanding that these two messengers of the Lord be sent out from among them so that they can sodomize them. Right? That's where the word comes from. So that they can violate them, abuse them, to use the words here. And so this picture is taking place here once again. But the, the statement is exaggerated, it's stark, it's, it's powerful, it's, it's painful. Because that was Sodom. This is Benjamin. This is the people of God. These are the chosen people of God set apart by him to be made holy, through whom all the peoples of the earth will be made holy and be blessed, through whom he will bring a Savior, the seed of Abraham, that will be a blessing to all nations. That is these people. And how are they living? They are living like Sodom lived. Sodom was the sum of its lusts. Sodom lived according to its appetites, according to its opinions, according to its thoughts, according to its desires, according to the cravings of their flesh. Sodom did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, doing whatever it was that pleased them, regardless of how it harmed other people, regardless of how it damaged others. The only thing that they were concerned with is they were concerned with themselves. But now it's not Sodom anymore. It's not Sodom, it's the church people of God, living as the sum of their own lust, doing what is right in their own eyes, living out of their own opinions. And so what you see here is the moral decay of Israel. What you see is the moral deterioration of Israel in such a way that now they are pounding on the door of a, of a sojourner to send out to them a man that they would not welcome in, begging that they might have the opportunity to break the law of God in at least three different ways. Think about that. I wonder right now if there are any of you that have text messages that you're waiting to have a, uh, an answer to. I wonder if there's a Facebook message in your inbox right now. I wonder if there's something in your Snapchat. I, I wonder if there's a relationship at work in which you've been talking in a particular way and regardless of the words that are used, you know the intent behind them is it's you begging for the opportunity to break the law of Christ. Pleading with the opportunity to bring dishonor to the law of Christ so that now you are living not as a set-apart child of God. You are living as though you are a son or a daughter of Sodom. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's supposed to arrest us when we read these words. As we see the moral deterioration that's taking place. 
You see, moral chaos has set in for Israel. Hospitality has turned into hostility. Love has turned into lust. What was wrong is now suddenly right, and what was right is now suddenly wrong, and up is down, and down is up. It is total chaos. But I'm here to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, that if we live according to our own whims, if we live by our own appetites, if we live in answering our own lusts, if we live according to our own opinions and our own thoughts, however they may be influenced or in even rebellion against the day in which we live, this kind of chaos is the only alternative. You see, what happens when we begin to ask, what, do, what is it that I want? rather than what is it that is right? What happens when we begin to ask, what is it that I think, rather than what is it that God has said? What happens when the driving force of our life is, how do I, how do I please myself, rather than how is it that I build up others? Well, when you have that many people with that many thoughts and that many opinions and that many directions and that many desires and that many wants, the only alternative is to splinter into a thousand different directions so that there is no unity, there is no collective ideal, there is no solidarity, there is no hope, there is no strength, there is no power. Now, when everybody lives according to their own wants and everybody lives to their own sense of purpose and everybody lives by their own opinions... The only, thing, the only uh, factor in the equation is total moral anarchy that's left. And, and so I, I think this passage wants us to ask the question, are you like Jesus or are you like Sodom? When you look at your life and you look in the mirror, how is it that you are making the decisions that you're making? How is it that you're doing the things that you're doing? Why? What is the great why behind your life? Is the great why behind your life because it, think, it, it seems right to you and it feels good to you and it is exciting to you? Or is the why behind your life that you are committed to God above all things, God above yourself? You see, the doctrine of, so, of Sodom is self. Self-promotion, self-preservation, self-indulgence. But the doctrine of Jesus is self-denial. Self-denial. To lay down yourself so that others may have hope and joy and pleasure. So individualism begins with moral deterioration and in, then individual leads to dehumanization. Individual le individualism leads to dehumanization. I want to pick up right where we left off. So you'll remember where we left off. They have raped this woman all night long because her husband has thrown her out the door at them to preserve himself. Okay? Listen to what it says next. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. The, the picture here is a woman that is so brutalized, a woman that is so violated, a woman that is so exhausted that she can't even get inside the door, that she's crawling on her hands and knees. And she just lays there with her hands draped over the threshold, wishing that she could get into a place of refuge and safety. It's meant to, make, to be emotional. It's meant to be sad. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of their ho her house with her hands on the threshold. That's what I was just describing. And he said to her, get up, 
let us be going. Do you hear how terse that is? Do, do you hear how, how uncaring that is? Do you, do you, do you hear just the, the lack of compassion and the lack of care for a man that has just done something so abhorrent to his own wife? It's meant to come across just that way, just that way. And he said to her, get up. Let us be going. This, he, a Levi, a man that is supposed to be representative of the people before God. Remember. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel and the people of Israel uh, and all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day consider it take counsel and speak so the picture there is a grotesque one and what we're seeing is what happens when the moral decay of a society begins to advance and the gangrene begins to set in. And what we see is when we forsake the Lord and we live according to our own lust, there's a progression that begins to take hold. And what we're intended to see here is not that it is okay to mistreat women. You understand that? Not that we are, it is okay for us to objectify women. Some people have read Judges 19, 20, and 21, and that's been their takeaway. And I'm here to tell you that is a grotesque, a grotesque misinterpretation of the Scripture. You have to understand the way that the Hebrews wrote, they didn't write the way that we write. We write very prescriptively. We write didactic, didactically, right? Like we say, all right, this is what you should do. This is what you should not do. This is who you should be. This is who you should not be. But the way that they would write is they wrote in, in, in images, in pictures. And they, the intention here is writing descriptively rather than prescriptively for the reader to see this and think, how in the world could such a horrible thing happen? How in the world could someone, the very one who was intended to defend this woman's honor, compromise her honor? How is it that the one who was supposed to provide and protect for her, protect her, would discard her in such a way? It's actually intended for us to see that this man is a grotesque example of what it means to be a servant of Almighty God. That it's actually the very opposite message that Judges is trying to communicate. It's trying to show us how, how advanced the moral decadence of this particular day is. And so he divides the woman's limbs, it cuts her up, and I want you to hold that into your mind because what we're going to see is we're going to see that Israel divides its own limbs here in just a minute. He divides her limbs and he ships her out to the elders of each tribe and it was a call to arms, let's go, let's, let this hypocritical man, remember this hypocritical man who, who calls, and he's the reason that she suffered in this way. He said, now we have to avenge her death. We have to go, we have to strike them down. And this is a theme throughout the last segment of the book of Judges. In Genesis chapter 19, we see this picture, this horrible picture of self-preservation. This idea of individualism, of one man is going to have to avenge his one wife's, uh, uh, his one wife's abuse that was the result of his own fault. And so he calls together a whole nation of people to do it. Genesis chapter 20, what we see is the whole nation, except for the tribe of Benjamin, comes together and they decide that the tribe of Benjamin must die. And so they come and they strike him as if they are one man. And, what, and, and a bloodlust comes over the whole of the people of Israel so that they forget what they are doing. And their punishment way outweighs the crime. And they strike down every man and every woman and every child in the tribe of Benjamin. So that all that is remaining is but 600 people, 600 soldiers 
600 men in the tribe of Benjamin. The people of Israel begin to weep. And they weep because what they've realized is that they were coming to avenge this woman whose severed limb they had received via FedEx. And here they are, and they have severed off their own limb. They have severed off Benjamin, one of the very tribes that God has given them. They have severed off their own inheritance, their own heritage, their own blood. And so what they decide to do? They decide in chapter 21 they're going to connive and come together with their own scheme on how they can put back together what they have killed according to their own bloodlust, doing what they thought they ought to do. And they come up with a scheme because they had all these oaths that they had made that they say that we can't give you our wives. But there was one city, Jabea Gilead, that did not show up. And so they go and they say, we're going to strike down all of the men of Jabea Gilead and you can have their wives. But there's only 400 of them and there's 600 men. So there's 200 yet. And so what they say is, we still, we cannot give you our daughters so that because of the oath that we have taken. And so hypocritically, you're supposed to see. They say there's going to be a dance at Shiloh, a festival. And our daughters are going to go and dance at the, Shil- at the festival at Shiloh. Think about the moral decay here. Our daughters are going to be down at the dance in Shiloh. You go and you steal as many of them as you need. First come, first serve. And 200 more women are stolen. And so you're supposed to see the hypocrisy, the moral hypocrisy of Israel as they have slain and severed one of the arms off of the whole tribe by cutting Benjamin away because of the rape of one woman. And now they personally, the one who were avenging this woman, have sanctioned the rape of 600 women. How do you get there? How do you get there? You get there when your life becomes so consumed with yourself that you don't think much of other people at all. You get there when other people become in your life objectives that are are uh, obstacles or opportunities to help you reach your objectives. You get there by objectifying other people to say they either help you obtain the happiness that you want, they help you obtain the success that you want, they help you attain to all of the goals that you've set for your life, or they stand in the way of getting in those things. And so they are either people to be drawn close to and to network with and to befriend and to be friendly with and to be hospitable with because they help you reach your own goals, or they are to be utterly destroyed because they are obstacles to your goals. See, individualism necessarily leads to dehumanization. See, in both of those cases, that is the dehumanized who is an image bearer of Almighty God. God has created all men and all women, all boys and all girls with His image dwelling in them so that C.S. Lewis says, you have never spoken to a mere mortal. Every person that you know is an immortal that is to live with God forever, praising Him, reflecting His glory in a way that nothing else that's ever been made can do. And what do we do? We make them means to our own ends. We make them opportunities to satisfy our own pleasures. One commentator Daniel Block, he writes it like this, commentating on the book of Judges. He says, ironically, in a world in which the individual makes himself the measure of all things, the individual eventually counts for nothing. When you look around the United States of America, let me zoom in a little bit more. When you zoom in on the church in the United States of America, 
Can you not see this? Can you not see this? Can you not see it? In which we have become so consumed with ourselves that we do not care about anybody else? Do you not see how, how it is that we become so consumed with our own health and our own happiness and our own pleasure and our own desires and our own leisure and our own purposes and our own ambitions that what we say is either you help me or you hurt me. And if you help me, you're in. If you hurt me, you're out. Makes me think about a story from a while back. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, we were doing this thing called the 30-hour famine. And what we did is we would ask the, chil- the, the, the teenagers to all fast for 30 hours from food. And most of them had never missed a meal in their entire lives, right? And we were going to do, during that time, we were going to be praying specifically for people around the world that didn't have any food and people that didn't have access to the gospel. So it was the, the, an earthly bread and the bread of life kind of both coming in. And this idea of hunger was supposed to provoke in them an understanding that maybe they didn't have before of what it's actually like to be hungry, what it's actually like to just kind of know that, that those feelings of starvation. And while we were fasting, one of the things that we did is we set up different stations around Calhoun County where they would take up money at the, like the doors of businesses and things like that. And there was a specific people uh, in Africa that was malnourished and we were gonna use those funds to be able to send it over and help uh, provide meals for some of the children that was in that area. And I remember we, one of the places that we set up was at the food land in, in Alexandria. And I, I just happened to, to come up uh, at, at, I guess, just the right time. And I noticed that everybody was kind of in a panic and uh, all, everybody was upset and confused. And one, I think one, 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 one of the girls was, was crying and just trying to figure out. I said, tell me what's happened. What happened? And they said that a lady came out of the food land. And you have to understand, these kids were from Alexandria. A lady came out of, of the food land and she, she, they told her what they were doing and they, she gave some money. And then she said, wait, now tell me again who you're feeding. And they said, oh, it's this such and such people in, in Africa. They, they, they don't have access to food and access to the gospel. We're going to work to do both. And she reached in and she took her money back out of the bucket. She said, oh, I thought that was for kids that are here. And she put it back in her purse. And what was the message? The message was, those kids don't fit my political ideology. Those kids don't... don't don't center with my concepts of nationalism. Those kids are of lesser value, lesser dignity than the kids right here. And the message is stark. But brothers and sisters, we do things just like that all the time. Why is it that abortion runs rampant in the 21st century. It runs rampant because children can be an obstacle to our ideas of happiness and our ideas of ambition and our concepts of of personal achievement. And so we would rather eliminate them than have them stand in the way of our individual goals and our individual ideas. Why is it that we mistreat waitresses? Thought about that? Do you know what unkindness is? Unkindness is a way that in which we dehumanize and drain people of their dignity so that we feel morally superior. That's what unkindness is. The reason that you undress the waitress that comes to your table and doesn't put pickles on your sandwich is because she failed you in helping you attain what you wanted to attain. And so you rob her of her dignity right there at the table before God and everybody. How do we treat our employees? That says something about us. 
Are our employees people, image bearers of Almighty God in whom we are to invest? Or are they only means to financial gain, only means to help us reach all of our goals and all of our ambitions and to help our business grow and prosper? What are your views on pornography? I'm not asking, do you think pornography is morally wrong or morally right? Probably every person in the church will say that. But I wish you could know the number of wives, the number of wives that reach out to me personally and say, my husband, I've discovered that my husband is addicted to pornography and I don't know what to do. And I, I feel totally, I feel totally violated. I feel totally cheated on. I feel like my husband doesn't love me or find me satisfying to him. What is pornography? Pornography is the pure objectification of an image bearer of Almighty God so that I can find pleasure in myself. It is to objectify two different people at the same time, both of whom were made by the hands of the living God, both of whom are made to live forever in the image of Almighty God, both of whom are made to be people that receive kindness and humility and and goodness in their life. And both, one to the end of their pleasure, one you're saying doesn't measure up, and in both cases you're saying, my life is about me. And you're dehumanizing people. Y'all, this is where individualism naturally leads. It's where it necessarily goes. It goes, begins with a moral deterioration, but then it goes to a dehumanization, a draining of the dignity of the very people that God has made to reflect Him in this world. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, how do you treat people? Do you view people as an opportunity for you to add value to their life? Or do you view people as an opportunity for them to add value to your life? Because you see, one of those is like Sodom, and one of those is like Jesus. And when you look at your life, which is the case? How do you think of people? How do you talk to people? How do you treat people? It says something about your view of God. It says something about your view of the kingdom. Individualism ends in destruction. It begins with moral deterioration. It leads to dehumanization, and it ends in destruction. Verse 11, it says something that has been looked for and aimed at all the way through the book of Judges. It says, so all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Now, throughout the book of Judges, you understand there has been a a disunity that is palpable, like like. There has been this desire throughout that all of the people of Israel would would unite together and strike down all the Canaanites that have been infiltrating their life, infiltrating their belief system, infiltrating their religious worship, infiltrating their own desires. And so they have all of these idols, they have all of these these uh, false uh, these false ideas, they have all of this desire. And now, what do we see? They're finally united together, but who are they united against? They're not united against Canaan. They're united against who? Israel. They're united against themselves. Verse 48, And the men of Israel turned back against whom? The people of Benjamin. And struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, the men and the beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. What do we see here? This is a civil war. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. This is a civil war. 
that the book of Judges starts with them in the promised land that God has brought them. And they have said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will commit everything that we have to go after the Lord with all that we have. We will serve him all the days of our lives. But by the end of the book of Judges, they're in the midst of a civil war, having severed off from themselves one of the very limbs of the people of Israel. That what they've discovered is that here, the greatest, no, don't miss this, don't miss this. The greatest enemy that faced Israel was not the Midianites. The greatest enemy that faced them was not the Jebusites. The greatest enemy that faced them was not the Philistines. The greatest enemy of Israel was who? It was Israel. It was Israel. That the greatest enemy wasn't out there somewhere. The greatest enemy was right here. The greatest enemy was their own hearts. It was the enemy within that was striking them down. See, the problem with Israel, if you sit there and you try to figure out why is it that Israel that always wanted to worship Canaan's gods, and why is it that Israel was always going after Canaan's wealth and trying to live the way that Canaan was and have what Canaan had, the Canaanites had and do what the Canaanites do, well, it's the very same reason that you do what everybody else that you work with does. And the reason that you're trying to get what everybody else you go to school with has. And the reason that you're tempted to think like everybody else that lives on your street thinks. It's because all of us are born with a Canaanite heart. All of us are born with a heart that loves this world. All of us are born with a heart that, that wants what we see and wants what we don't have. That's born with envy. That's born with a thought of not how can I help you, but how can I help me? All of us are born with a heart that's bent towards self-destruction. The prophet Jeremiah, he says it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I want you to think about the picture. What does it mean to be deceived? It means to do the wrong thing while you think you're doing the right thing, doesn't it? That in other words, you can do what seems right in your own eyes. And doing what seems right in your own eyes, you think you're right every step of the way. That you can be drinking in the poison every day, all day, and it can taste good to you. That sin is always a delicious poison to sinners. But it's like a predator. How do, how do we warn our children against predators? What do predators do? Predators win your trust, don't they? They allure you with something that looks attractive. And once they win your trust and they allure you with something that's attractive, they come down on you and they destroy you. That's how the Bible understands the human heart. That was Israel's problem. And y'all, that's our problem. That we are born with a heart that is bent toward self-destruction. So don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is a hell-bent GPS giving you turn-by-turn directions away from the goodness of God, away from how to thrive as a human being, away from how you can maximize this life and steward it well, what God has given to you, so that away from the sense of significance, away from that sense of purpose, away from the solidarity that is intended to be experienced and enjoyed by the people of God. No, 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 no. Don't follow your heart, man. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. See, the whole new covenant, the purpose of the new covenant is for you to take that heart that you have in you that is hell-bent and to take it and to offer it up to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you will offer me your heart, I'll give you a new one. 
that you will be born again. And on this new heart, I will write my law. And so now, you won't have to worry about all these things out out there. You won't have to try to have what everybody else has and do what everybody else does. I'm going to place in you my Holy Spirit, the law written on your heart, so that in me you can be satisfied. In me you can have peace. In me you can have joy. So you see, there's this is a stark picture at the end of Judges, but it's not a hopeless one. You see, individualism needs a deliverer, but God promises one. See, we all know what's supposed to happen at Sodom, don't we? Here we have the people of Israel, and they're being painted in the same light as Sodom. And what happened to Sodom? Fire and sulfur comes down. Lot's wife is running away. She's not even under the fire and sulfur, and she looks over her shoulder and turns into a pillar of salt. We know, we know what happens to Sodom. And that means that we know what is supposed to happen to us. But read really carefully that last summary verse. In those days, there was no king. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? There is a new day coming. There is a new day coming. There is a future that is different than the present. There is a future that is different than the past, that God is going to raise up for us a king that is after his very own heart, who is going to slay the giants of Israel that will bring together and unify the people of God there in the city of Jerusalem. And he will build a palace and bring together all of his people and he will establish a throne. But upon that throne, a greater king will come and that king will slay a greater giant to face. You see what that king will do? is he will stand between you and the fire that is owed to the people of Sodom, and he will endure it himself. He will allow the fire and the sulfur to come down upon himself so that you, his people who deserve it, might be delivered. Oh, brothers and sisters, do not follow your heart. Do not follow your desires. Do not follow your whims. Follow Jesus. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.